0: Hey guys, there's an old pastor joke that says something like this. Other than preaching, pastors really only have two jobs when it comes to people. We marry them and we bury them. Now I have to tell you, like you, I like the marry them part a lot better. And here we are now, right smack in the middle of October, the month that's become the most popular wedding month there is. So that fact, along with planning for my own daughter's wedding, got me thinking about weddings, more specifically in regards to the series that we're in together right now called The Faces of Another, it got me to thinking about wedding vows. As a part of any good wedding planning meeting, one of the first questions I do when when I'm going to, to marry a young couple is I ask the bride and the groom what kind of vows they would like to use. Do they want to go with the traditional vows, or are they going to be writing their own? Now to date, I would tell you just about every couple that comes in has told me so far, they wanna go with the traditional vows, which I love. But I have to tell you though, my next question should be, how traditional do you want to go? Because like maybe some of you, I can actually remember back to the days of my youth when the traditional wedding vows were just a little bit different than they are today. It used to be asked of the groom, for example, Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse, richer for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death do us part? Mmm, beautiful. Sounds pretty standard, right? Pretty familiar. And then traditionally, the officiant would turn to the young bride and ask her something quite similar, yet today, culturally shocking. Do you take this man to be your wedded husband? To have and to hold from this day forward for better and for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and obey till death do us part? Yeah, did anybody catch that? There was just that one added word there for the ladies. Did you hear that little incremental promise you were supposed to make? To obey? That vow seems to have gone the way of the eight-track tape and the hustle assigned to the trash heap and folly of silly days gone by. Now, men, I, I don't want to disappoint you. I'm sorry I will, though. Ladies, before you leave, let me assure you, I am not here today to advocate for that traditional vow's return, but I do want to look at where it came from, how it got there, and maybe in doing so... Help us to to see its purpose for both husbands and wives, men and women, in the faces of another. See, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been part of what we've been up to over these last few weeks in this series, we're looking at how the writers of the New Testament detailed for us how we were to fulfill this one new law of Christ. Jesus, he comes on the scene in the first century in Israel, and he establishes for all of those who would choose to follow this, this new way to be made right with God, it, it would be by, by grace, by God's unmerited favor. It wouldn't be based on anything you did or didn't do. It would be by God's forgiveness granted to us, and in a sense activated within us through faith in the life and the, the atoning sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. This so-called new covenant, this new promise of God's, it would, wouldn't be bound by all of the old traditions and rules, laws, and ceremonies of the Jewish faith, but this one new law of Jesus that John, is his disciple, his student, a firsthand witness, recorded Jesus saying, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. And so what we've been doing over the last four weeks is looking at four of the nearly hundred ways that the New Testament informs us on how to do just that. How do we love one another? Well, the answer is, in a sense, just that. We one another one another we've used FACES, F-A-C-E-S, as an acronym for the five or five of the hundred ways that we're called to one another, one another. So far, we've looked at the call and the challenge of forgiving one another and accepting one another, caring for one another, and encouraging one another. Today, Today, I don't know, uh, maybe we get to what has to be at least the most culturally challenging way of all. Today, we look at learning to submit to one another. It was the Apostle Paul who himself lived by all of the old covenant ways of trying to gain God's approval through obedience to all of the laws and ceremonies that, that, well, once he had his life turned upside down through his encounter on the road to Damascus with the resurrected Jesus, did you know that, by the way, Paul, he never met Jesus during his earthly life, during Jesus' earthly life. He only met Jesus post-resurrection. And that encounter was enough to make him give up all of his power, authority, and reputation as a Pharisee among Pharisees and become Jesus' greatest evangelist. Well, it was Paul, now having exchanged all 613 laws of the Torah for this one law of Jesus, who wrote most of these one another commands, Paul, in fact, while in a prison cell in Rome for evangelizing, he writes a letter to the church he had planted sometime earlier in the city of Ephesus. In that letter, Paul begins by celebrating what God's done through Jesus, and how specifically he had now made one new people? Well, out of many. He tells them that now, quote, there is one body, one spirit, Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of unity. And then Paul challenges them uh, as what he calls new creations. He says to take off the old self and put on the new self, the new person that God through His Spirit is creating within them, and as He gives them some examples of what we should take off and put on. Paul says, old fleshly human beings, well, they lie, but new creations, they take that off and they put on truth. He goes on, he, he says, take off anger and put on peace. Instead of stealing, be generous and instead of gossiping about one another encourage each other. Paul says take off revenge put on forgiveness. He goes on he says look instead of, of gratifying every sexual impulse that your body has instead put on some self-control. Instead of using alcohol to lower your inhibitions allow God's spirit to fill you up and rule you. Now, the reality is many of us know what tends to happen when we have had too much to drink, where it leads us and what it can lead to, and that's what Paul's warning us against. He says instead, get filled to overflow. In a sense, get drunk with the Spirit of God. Be filled with it and overflowing from it, and then he goes on to list the things that that would lead to. Four things, actually. Two of them, believe it or not, the first two are singing. Now, maybe you've experienced that in a wor- worship service. In my own walk with Jesus, some of the times I felt closest to God when his presence has been almost overwhelming to me is through music. Many of you have shared how when you come on Sunday morning during the worship time, you're just moved to tears. You, you feel something in your spirit. That's the power of Music. He then gives a third thing, again, that maybe you've experienced when you felt very close to God. He says that as new creations, full of the Spirit of God, we should, quote, always be giving thanks to God the Father for everything. And that would be my experience too, guys, and maybe yours. When I'm closest to God, I find myself so very thankful. I find myself generous. I mean, that would be my testimony. When I'm living out of my old ways, my old self, my old man, I tend to be, well, jealous or envious and and selfish. And so I get that one too. And so here's what we have. Paul says, look, take off the old, put on the new, be filled with the Spirit of God, and here's what will flow from you. Four things. Two of them are song, right? Song and music. Then thankfulness, Now, what's the fourth thing that would flow out of someone filled with the Spirit of God? What would characterize a new kind of people, a different kind of people, an unusual kind of people, a people so rare that everybody would know that, well, well, because they do that, they have to be, they must be followers of Jesus. You ready for this? Submit to one another people filled with the Spirit of God, they submit to one another. And now that word there in the original Greek, hypotasso, and its meaning is not that old, much old, that different than what you would think it means. It, it literally means to place yourself under someone else, to, to rank under them, or, or to subject oneself to another. That's the fourth thing a person full of the Spirit of God does. He sings, he gives thanks, and he submits. Now, you remember the wedding vow discussion before. Let me show you where that came from. Verse 22, the very next verse, here's what it says. Wives, submit yourself, which is where the idea of obey came from, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But I wanna share with you guys the dirty little secret of verse 22. Because in the original Greek in which it was written, the verse actually says this, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit isn't there. Certainly the word obey isn't there. Why is that? Well, because in the Greek in which this was written, the verb was taken from, it was inferred from the verse before. And the verse before instructed us to submit to one another. So then Paul goes on quite naturally after he tells us to submit to one another to give examples of how that would work out in various relationships. First, he begins with, for a wife in a Christian marriage. But nowhere did Paul nullify the command to a husband to submit to one another and certainly his wife is a one another. See, here's what husbands and wives do who are new creations in Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, who act in a way that would be unusual to cultural expectations. They submit to one another. In Christian marriages, husbands and wives place their needs, their desires, their hopes, dreams, expectations, they place their well-being under those of the other. Now I want you to hear me on this. Submitting is not a gender role. Submitting is a new creation command. And it's not only super unusual, it's super unnatural. Because I have to tell you, my old man, my old self, as Paul would say, my old nature, it doesn't want to submit to anyone. I don't know if any of you saw President Trump the other day when he arrived back at the White House after being at Walter Reed Medical Center for a few days battling COVID. He gave a little bit of a a national pep talk regarding the virus and how as a people, we should not live our lives in, in fear of getting sick. It was his wording that struck me, though, as as we were getting ready to talk about this command today. Here's what he said, quote, don't let it, the virus, dominate you. And that is us as Americans, right? We don't want to live in fear, and nobody is going to dominate us. We ain't submitting to no virus. And my dad, when I was growing up, he used to wrestle my brothers and I around quite a bit in the living room, and then and eventually somebody got hurt. And when they did, my dad would, you know, always kind of look over at us and say, listen, suck it up. And I remember specifically every time it would, it would be, hey, just be a man about it. Now, of course, since that rarely made the cut or the lump feel any better, we'd usually go crying off to our mom because she had more compassion. Now, I know we probably exaggerated what my dad did until it got so bad my mom would come racing in the room to see what was going on, and eventually she would protest to my father that he was being too rough. And my dad, joking, well, I mean, maybe only half joking, he would say that this was part of our man training. Now, as part of that man training, and I'm sure I've handed this down to my sons, probably in too big a dose, but part of my man training was this. You never, ever, under any circumstances, ever let somebody dominate you. You never lose a fight, you keep going, you keep fighting, you keep getting up. You never give up, you never get in. Whatever you do, you don't submit yourself to anyone else. We don't do that. Both of my sons went on to wrestle uh, from being little boys right through high school. And that's actually a mantra of the sport. Your goal in wrestling is to exert your dominance on your opponent, to subject them to your will. This is for us as American as baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolets. And that, my friends, is what would make this one another so peculiar. Now, I want you to understand, when Jesus says that we're to submit to one another, he's not asking us to allow others to dominate us or to subject us to their will, nor is he asking us to simply let anybody, no matter how evil or wrong they are, to just have their way as we sit passively by. I mean, the the whole of Scripture shows that over and over. God calls Moses not to passively sit by as Pharaoh dominates uh, his people, God called Daniel not to follow the decrees of the king. Peter and John keep preaching about Jesus despite being told by the Jewish authorities to to keep their mouths shut. Heck, Paul's writing this letter from a Roman jail because of his lack of civil obedience. So that's not what this is about. This is about how we fulfill the command to love one another. And we do that as we lovingly submit to one another. We do that not because of someone exerting dominance over us, not because somebody is stronger, richer, more powerful, or or authoritative than us. Of course, we'd have to submit then. We willingly do it out of love. And I have to tell you, the call is especially poignant to the strong and to the rich and to the powerful. The call to submission is common to everyone and for everyone, but it's more curious for some. Let me explain. For example, James, the the brother of Jesus, he called all of us to the common call. Quote, submit yourselves, James wrote, therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So we all should resist uh, the devil and we should all submit ourselves to God. Now Peter, oh man, some of you know impetuous Peter. Step out of the boat, Peter. I'll never deny you, Peter. Well, as usual, Peter, he steps it up a little, takes it another step. He says, don't just you submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or the supreme authority or to governors. Can I remind you all of that as we get a little closer to that first week in November? but it's not just civil authorities. How about this? The writer to the Hebrews told them regarding leaders in the church to, quote, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Now, of course, these things, this kind of submission, it's not uncommon. I mean, this is submission to authorities, to people who have power over us. In some sense, our choice is limited. What are we going to do? But Paul then goes on to make it more personal and more peculiar when he wrote to the Ephesians. First, he would tell us to submit one to another. Sure, a wife to a husband, I mean, that's common. In the first century, wives were treated as possessions by husbands. But Paul specifically says to submit one to another. He doesn't rule out a husband to a wife but he doesn't leave it there. He goes on. Children, he says, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Well, nothing groundbreaking there. Children have to obey their parents. They're an authority over them. They have power they have, in the relationship. But again, in a world, in a first century world, where children existed without any rights and were often used as day laborers, then Paul, Paul shockingly says this. Oh, and fathers. Don't exasperate your children. Paul, wait, what? You want fathers to consider the well-being of their children? Now, he keeps going. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Well, again, nothing groundbreaking there until you read this. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Wait, wait, Paul, you want masters to treat slaves, and and now these weren't slaves in the way we think of, of that word in the 21st century. These were more likely indentured servants that owed a debt. You want masters. To, to respect them, fear them, and have sincerity of heart towards them? You want masters to serve the slaves? I mean, Paul, if I put this all together, it sounds like you want husbands and fathers and masters to submit themselves to wives and children and slaves. I mean, are you crazy? I mean, Paul, if I were to step back and just look at it from a a big picture point of view, it almost sounds like you think there's neither Jew nor Gentile or or slave or free or or male or female. You seem to be saying that, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. Oh, wait. That is what you said. Now, look. I know the word submission carries with it a lot of baggage, right, especially for women, who for centuries have had this one verse, this one application plucked from the pages of Scripture and, and held over their heads. There's no doubt, submitting to anybody can be scary. That's why I was told to never do it. I'm, su- I'm supposed to put you first and, and, and you're supposed to put me first? But listen, I, I don't know if I trust that you're gonna put me first. So what I'm going to do is I'm gonna put myself first until I see that you put me first. And then when I see that you put me first, if I think I can trust you, then I'll go back and I'll put you first. Because I mean, if I don't do it that way, if I, if I were to, to just submit to you first and, and you don't, and, I mean, what's gonna happen? I mean, you might, you might just take advantage of me. That doesn't seem fair. I, I know this is a difficult topic. I can hear some of you going, I mean, you want me to submit to my husband? Do you, you, I try that. You know what my husband's like? I can hear some of you gentlemen going, you, you want me to, to submit to my wife's ideas? Do you know how responsible my wife can be? I can hear others going, you want me to submit to my boss? Do you, do you know what my boss thinks? Do you know what my boss does? I mean, I get that. I, I, I know that you could read, and I know that you're aware there are lots of places in the Bible I've just showed you that call for this, and I, I'm sure that you might feel compelled by the weight of the Scripture, but you also know it could end bad for you. Why should you take that chance? Well, as usual, with all of these one and others, Paul gives us an answer. And i got to tell you guys, this is the same old answer. He says submit to one another because your husband's worthy of it. Nope. Because your wife has really good ideas and you should trust her. Nope. Because your boss, he thinks the way you do. Nope. Well, because your neighbor, you should submit to your neighbor. You know why? Because they're going to vote the same way you do. Nope. Paul says you should submit to one another, and here's why out of reverence for Christ. Why would I do such a crazy thing? Well, for the same reason he asked us to forgive one another, accept one another, take care of one another, encourage one another. Why? Because you revere, you have reverence and awe and respect for Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. You see, remember now, you don't forgive people because they don't did something to deserve to be forgiven. You don't accept people, well, because they're good and right people. No. You don't care for people because they cared for you first. You don't encourage others because they've cheered you on. No. Here's what we've learned so far. You do all of those things for the same reason that Paul calls us to submit to one another. And here's where submission goes from common to peculiar to almost seemingly blasphemous you submit to one another out of reverence for the way the lord jesus submitted to you and just like jesus asked us to forgive others the way he forgave us we didn't deserve it and just like jesus asked us to accept one another the way he accepted us long before we ever cleaned ourselves up or got our acts together. I'm asking you now to submit to one another, to put your wishes, your desires, your hopes, dreams, and plans, I'm asking you to put those below in rank to everybody else's. Now, you, you might be going, John, I mean, I, I get it, I, I get that Jesus forgave me and accepted me and cared for me and encouraged me when I didn't deserve any of those things. In fact, that's kind of inspiring. I'm inspired by the way Jesus did that. You know what, I could do that to others because Jesus did it for me. But like, John, Jesus like Jesus God and bod, Jesus. Like John, don't blaspheme Jesus, dude. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is like the man, he, he's dominant. You know, you know about those stories about, about him yelling at the Pharisees, and what about those stories about Jesus flipping over money changer tables? Jesus, John, you're missing it. Jesus subjected his opponents to his will. Jesus doesn't submit to anybody, which of course is kind of a common way of thinking not unlike the thinking of husbands, and fathers, and slave masters. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus is anything but common. Paul explained it to the Philippian church this way. In humility, value others above yourselves. Another version puts it this way, consider others better than yourself. He goes on, not looking your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, which I have to tell you sounds an awful lot like submitting to one another, valuing someone else above yourself. He keeps going. He says, in your relationships with one another, I want you to have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, and now I need you to listen to this fathers and husbands and and bosses and and anyone with any kind of authority. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. he, He humbled himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? How submissive? Even to death, death on a cross. Guys, Jesus takes all of his power, his rights, his authority, all of his strength, and he leverages them, not for himself. He could have, but he didn't. He leverages them for you. Jesus submitted himself. He lowered himself to the level of servant for you. Jesus put your interests, your hopes, your dreams, and he put all of them ahead of his own. He let go of his power and his privilege to, again, this is crazy, to submit himself to you. And why did he do it? to restore and to regain and to make right the relationship between God and us. Jesus was willing to, and at a great cost, a much greater cost than you're likely to pay. He was willing to submit himself to us. Jesus was willing to go first in a sense, at a steep cost because the relationship was that valuable to him. You were that valuable to him. And the question then rings out across the millennia to you and I, would you do that? Would you go, even though there might be a cost, would you go and submit yourself one to another? I mean, think through that. How peculiar a group of people In the divisive culture we're in now how peculiar would they be how strange would they look if if this group of folks that lived amongst everybody else suddenly just decided that the relationships were important enough amongst themselves that they were willing to submit themselves one to another, That they were going to put their, uh, the cares and concerns and wishes, the hopes, dreams, desires, wants, and plans of others ahead of their own. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the workplace, the, the store, the team? As we roll into November, can you imagine the country? The country where everybody decided that they were going to leverage everything they had on behalf of another? that they weren't gonna claim their rights or that they have to get what they deserve, but instead they'd be willing to humble themselves, consider others better than themselves, and submit one to another. This is why I keep saying the hope for this world, the hope for this country is not to be found in politics or politicians, It's to be found in Jesus and his church. What if we went first? See, this singular principle, just to be honest with you, this singular principle completely changed Joan and I's marriage. Now, it's a long story, and it's for a different day, but I can tell you from experience this. When two people decide to take the chance, That they're going to stop fighting for their rights and their needs, their hopes, their dreams, and desires. When two people stop demanding they get what they deserve, and instead they decide to lay down, it is what they've earned, and leverage all that it is that they have, not to get their own way, but to focus instead on the hopes and dreams and the plans of their spouse. My testimony to you is this, marriages change, houses change, families change, and I believe generations change. I I heard Tim Keller give a great definition of submission. He he used it in regards to Jesus' submission to the will of his Father. Jesus submits to us, and of course he submits to God. Maybe he's a little more submissive than we give him credit for. Now, many of you know, on the night Jesus was arrested to be cruci- uh, arrested and was going to be crucified, he went off to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And what was this prayer? Was it, "Oh God, I'm so thankful I'm going to be beaten, whipped, spat upon, and crucified in order to submit to Your will." Oh, praise God! No, no. In His humanity, He went to the Garden to pray that this cup, this burden, would pass from Him. And here's what we know. We know his prayer was heard, and we know his prayer was answered. Here's how the writer of Hebrews put it. He said he was heard, Jesus' prayer was heard. Why? Because of his reverent submission. Keller said that submission means struggling, because submission is a struggle, but struggling from the right vantage point. Guys, from Jesus' human vantage point all he could see was mind-blowing, staggering pain. But when when he was able to pause and see from his father's vantage point, when he was able to look and see a redeemed, forgiven people who would create this one new beautiful humanity that would last forever and ever and ever, this same Jesus, willingly submitted himself to his Father's will first. He went first, and he did it at a great personal cost. See, Paul gave you the why of submission. You should submit out of reverence for Christ. Jesus shows you the how. You do this as you see the vantage points of others. Stop only looking at your own interests but look at the interests of others. Can I ask you, would you mind taking a chance and seeing things from their perspective? Look from the vantage point of your wife. See the point of view of your husband, your kid, your boss, your neighbor, your adversary, and then out of reverence for Christ because you revere what it is that he did for you. Submit to one another. Now, humility is hard. Submission is not easy. Even for Jesus' church, the pursuit of of the opposite, uh, the pursuit of glory and riches, power and position, even for the church, it's always been a misplaced value. One writer put it this way, the gravitational pull of the ego is relentless. I sometimes wonder whether those of us in the church are just as preoccupied with honor and status as everyone else. We just cover it over with a thin veneer of spiritual language. I mean, look, we develop our own cult of celebrities. Truth is, we often prefer the wealthy or attractive or successful. There's an old story that Thomas Aquinas was being shown the, the glories of the Vatican by Pope Innocent IV. The Pope said, and he was referring to the story of a lame beggar in the book of Acts, that, quote, the church no longer has to say, silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas replied, yes, but no longer is the church able to say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. Madam Hills, it turns out that the submission wedding vow is for all of us. Christ is the groom. We, the church, are his bride. And, and this week, I want you to look for the opportunity in the faces of another husbands and wives, children and fathers, employees and bosses. People at the bottom, and then in a peculiar sense, people at the top. Here's the deal. Every single one of you has some power and some authority in some relationship somewhere, and in the name of Christ, out of reverence for Christ, this week go, see things from a different vantage point, struggle with submission from the point of view of another, and then Use all you've got. I don't know if it's your power, your words, your actions. Maybe it's your money, your title, your position. You use them and leverage them for someone other than you. Submit yourself. Therefore, one to another, and I'm telling you, watch as your spouse and your kids and uh, your workplace, our town, your neighbors, our world, look on in wonder and know that you are a disciple of his.